0: you part two of Girl Talk with Dr. Sheila Luanzin. Um, We talked to her maybe about two weeks ago. Everyone has sent in their questions. And so I had anybody whose questions we didn't get to last time and a few more ladies sent in questions this time. So I'm very excited to be able to have her on here and answer all of our burning questions. Um, everything will be presented anonymously. As soon as she joins here, I can add her to our conversation. Um, But basically she wrote this book about herpes. Yes, I have herpes and you may not have herpes. I don't have herpes. I happen to not have herpes, but I did find this book really useful as both a nurse and just a woman to find out a little bit more about women's health. And actually I have chronic back pain and in the back she goes through a lot of different exercises that you can do to improve your health. Um, mindfulness meditation, and then I really liked her positive self talk and reframing negative talks. So, oh, there she is. Let's get her in here. How do I? Oh, no. I'm sorry. <laughs> How do I invite her? Sorry, I'm having a little bit of technical difficulty, and it is. Oh. It's not letting me. Oh, can I? Yes. Can I? (laughs) I'm getting a little sweaty. That like gave me a little bit of a run for my money. Okay. (laughs) yeah <laughs> i like wasn't even showing that you were here and i was like i know she's here she didn't forget the time <laughs> i am always on time but i did get to give a little bit more rundown about your book and yes. i will admit i didn't read all of it before last time you know with a newborn it's a little bit hard to come by private time but i did get to read more and i love in the back it says I didn- how do you access the bonus audio? Yeah. So,
1: um, it actually, they would have to contact me through Instagram and just give oh. me the, um, Amazon receipt number and then I will send it to them. Okay. Yeah, so I a little bit that. of a um, computer glitchy thing. Happen. Oh, gotcha.
0: Um, but I liked this because it reminded me when I was a new graduate nurse on the floor, like I always felt like, if the first 30 minutes of my shift were crazy then the whole 12 and a half hours i would have so much negative self-talk so when i was reading this i can't do this everything is going wrong i literally would always say to myself this is the worst shift ever (laughs) and then it like the, the shift would be the worst ever but i like the reframing of i will do the best that i can i will take this one step at a time so as i said i don't happen to have herpes People reading this may not happen to have herpes, but the the information is really useful for women's health and just
1: it translates
0: for health exactly.
1: Yeah, thank you. Oh, I'm so excited to have you
0: back. What is your What does it say behind you, baby? You're You're a firework.
1: (laughs) I'm gonna make this a little Fourth of July theme, so I have like like my um, solo cup, solo beer pong. (laughs) 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 Keep it really American. I have to drink again. Whoops. Yeah.
0: <laughs> did you get more um, questions this time? I did, and I have a lot from last time. And I'm there. Honestly, it's like a hodgepodge. So mm-hmm. it's a lot of, like, things gone wrong with vaginas, so to speak. So I'm interested in that. Okay. I'm just going to get right into it because I know we didn't get to answer everyone's questions last time. So yeah. let's get down to it. Ugh. What is the favorite part of your job?
1: Oh. Uh. Probably the continuity of care. So mm. when I entered into medicine, I actually thought I wanted to be a hematology oncologist. Oh. My. Yeah. Um, but my personality, my, my dad passed away from brain cancer when I was 20, so I thought that that was you know, something that I oh. wanted to go into just because I was so impacted by it. But you know me. My personality is so like dramatic and, <laughs> and energizing. And so it just, the topic matter didn't really seem to fit very well. And then Mm. I thought I wanted to go into internal medicine, but then I realized that it frustrates me when I give recommendations and it doesn't always follow through. (laughs) Um, And then I thought I wanted to be a pediatrician, but parents are crazy. They're crazy. Um, (laughs) And then I loved OBGYN because it was like continuity of care. It was a little bit emergency room. It was a little bit of surgery. It was a little bit of office. Um, You see the same people over and they actually come to you wanting some type of either treatment, like I can't get pregnant. Okay, now I want to get pregnant. Um, I'm peeing everywhere. Okay, now I'm bleeding everywhere. Um, You know, all of these different things. And so they actually listened and wanted to partake in their care, which I think is really important. And so um, I did my first rotation and diagnosed someone who had infertility issues and was able to get pregnant and then uh-huh. did a routine prenatal care. But within that, then I had someone who had a fetal demise. Um, and then I went to the operating room and got to suture for the first time. So it was just so cool to just do everything. So that's, that's yeah. why I love it.
0: It feels very specific, but it really is very broad like right? because you see is. all ends.
1: Definitely. Yes. Women's health is really broad, but you can specialize in it. And patients feel really comfortable to tell me everything about themselves. And so that Really helps whether I'm able to make them comfortable or they just feel compelled to tell me everything I mean yes. either way it works so I'm happy that's
0: that's so true and you think about it like if someone's willing to go to you because they have a problem then they really want your advice because most women are pretty like oh well, it'll sort itself out or you know <laughs> you know I'm not gonna bother it's such a big deal even if you like call the advice line and you get a man you're kind of like
1: uh, <laughs> I mean, I will say that male OBGYNs are phenomenal. They are actually yeah. really, really very sensitive, um, delicate, in touch with their emotions. So I actually think some people say that male OBGYNs are actually one of the best experiences that they've had. But I think the, the profession itself is so predominantly female. Most people are like, well, why would I choose a guy? I have, you know, the choice of winning, sure. so I would rather just, you know, go with that. But I, I in my experience, are actually really excellent, excellent doctors.
0: That's very true. I was, and actually I was talking about like the guy who actually makes the appointment for you. It was after I had Sadie and I like was having some questions about bleeding and it was just like a guy, you know, who answers the phone. And I was like, mm, but he was very professional and I have okay. no complaints. <laughs> Um, all right. So should men take vitamins before or while trying to conceive? And if so, do you have any recommendations?
1: Yeah. So it's interesting. There isn't, when I went through my OBGYN residency, it was not a well-known fact for men to take vitamins, you know, the same women, Mm -hmm. the same way we recommend for women too. However, having said that, I actually think it's really wonderful if men did, because if you think about it, the sperm that they're creating, the ejaculate, this, this environment that they're creating, can be influenced. I mean, because I do think that uh, marijuana um, use and tobacco smoking Mm. and, you know, any kind of, um, where there could be trauma to the general area for men can affect fertility. So while it's not a current recommendation that everybody does, I've certainly gone to Ayurvedic physicians. I've certainly gone to like, you know, read books and they say, yeah, just take a multivitamin. It's not gonna harm you. You're gonna pee out whatever you don't take, so. Sure. Yeah, what's the harm? I meant
0: to ask my friend, okay, she was tried to have a baby for like six years and then her husband started taking a supplement and they got pregnant like within a few months of that. And I meant to ask her what that was because that was really interesting but
1: yeah I mean if you were to talk to any like natural or holistic people I actually think that they do often recommend that just because you never know what nutrients you're deficient in and you know vitamin d deficiency and vitamin b and and if there's any kind of inflammation um you can actually decrease it by taking antioxidants so if you can then why not
0: yeah exactly and we may do a book club about the egg I, I may have ordered it I meant to if not I'm going. I don't know
1: how you have all the time to read, but yes.
0: (laughs) I at least like skim, I bought this new etiquette book that was like, excuse me, but I was next in line, which is so up my alley because I like to know what you're supposed to say in that situation. Yes. Yes. Perfect. But I don't have time to read it. Um, okay. So one of my coworkers told me about this and I'm curious for your professional opinion. It was about using a diva cup or a menstrual cup after intercourse to increase the odds of conceiving.
1: Um, theoretically, that makes sense. But medically, no. Because if you think about it, <laughs> because the sperm... Okay, so the ejaculate itself is two, three cc's amount. Okay. You only need one sperm in there to be able to inseminate an egg. Mm-hmm. and you kind of want the smartest one. So you don't want the one that's going the opposite <laughs> direction or is on its way out. Or, you know, if you want the one that has the good direction and the good, um, you know, swim power to be mm-hmm. able to get there. So, you know, the thought mm-hmm. processes people have of, like, elevating their legs, to trying to get pregnant. Yeah, it reminded me of that. Up. Yeah, propping up on a pillow. Again, you're going to want the one that's going to go to Harvard, you know, so it really doesn't necessitate trying to, trapping in and hopes that it rotates around and goes the right way
0: okay but then like what about intrauterine insemination I don't know that much about the specialties but is that kind of then the same
1: thing no ends so up happening so if you imagine your uterus like a light bulb okay like mm-hmm. a light bulb and what happens I don't have any props here but what happens is that you end up like they actually take a catheter Mm-hmm. It through your cervix, so it's sitting in the uterus, and they implant it right there. So they're literally giving it to the uterus. Very different than the Diva Cup. If this is your cervix right here, the Diva Cup is sitting here. Yeah, So it's not gonna do anything. But it's when like a ins- lift. <laughs> it's like a pessary. It's like a, a sling, but it's not gonna. It's not like IUI where it's actually going inside the uterus and like getting deposited right there.
0: Sure. But then why it's like giving a better
1: chance of the sperm? I mean, I think if the ejaculate has two or three million sperm in there, you don't have to trap all of it.
0: Mm. Okay. You
1: know, and the other part of it too is is that 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 stuff that you're trying to like hold up close is full Mm -hmm. of like sugar and media and all of these things energy to give to the little, you know, swimmy flagella, fancy words, flagella to, Mm -hmm. to get all the way up there. And so you really don't need to trap it. Again, you want the smartest sperm to go. So, um, (laughs) although I went to community college, (laughs) I I mean, I don't think it's a necessary, um, thing to do. I think they'll know where to go.
0: And you touched on this last time. So if you're under 35, you should try for a year with no, nothing fancy, so to speak, in terms of medically. Um, And then if you're over 35, you should try for six months before speaking to a physician. Correct. That is correct.
1: And the reason why is just because we don't want to waste time in trying to get people pregnant if they're really trying. Particularly more so if you have irregular periods, you may want to touch base with your OBGYN sooner, just because you want to make sure that if you are missing something, that you identify it right away. Got it.
0: Okay, actually, since you mentioned that, I'm gonna skip down to um my periods are close together and hormones are out of wax since breastfeeding ended one year ago. So her periods are totally out of whack and her hormones are out of whack. Um, is there anything I can do? I want to get pregnant, but my period starts too soon after ovulation.
1: So did they give any details in terms of like how soon after
0: they stopped breastfeeding one year ago? So let's just say she's two years postpartum.
1: Okay. So what ends up happening is, is an, in an average cycle, let's say it's a 28 day cycle. Most people will ovulate days seven to 14. I give a very broad range, seven to 14. But usually the studies show that the first half of the cycle is always the same, regardless of how short your periods are, your cycle period is. So even if you had a 21 day cycle, Mm -hmm. let's say, so you're bleeding, you know, every 21 days, you're still going to be ovulating the same time, seven to 14 days. Hmm. Okay. So if anything, it's probably annoying because that means like as soon as you recover from your period, you're ovulating and soon you're going straight into the period. Um, So that might be a little difficult, but the ovulation period is still happening the same way. It's just the long period. So for instance, if someone had periods every two months, Mm -hmm. you would generally still be ovulating days seven to 14. And just the second half of the cycle is a lot longer.
0: Mm Okay. Yeah. So Okay, so let's say this person is, ovu- is has bleeding every three weeks, every 21 days. Mm-hmm. She's still ovulating day 7 to 14. Yeah. So that doesn't matter that much. Correct.
1: Correct. Okay. So again, if you're having sex every two to three days, you should catch that window.
0: Okay, so she should have sex every two to three days. Um, obviously, I don't believe she's been trying for a full year <laughs> if she's under 35. Is there anything else she can do to increase her odds of getting pregnant?
1: Um, other than taking supplements, of course, making sure she's healthy in other ways. So exercising is really important and healthy diet and you know, don't, don't smoke, don't do drugs, don't do marijuana. I think that that's an important thing. That's a very popular you know, it's it's um the relax.
0: You it's know, legal.
1: People. Yeah, I mean and it's legal, which is really hard. But what happens is that in your tube you have these flagella. That's apparently gonna be my word today. Like so it has these like um cilia that help to move the egg down. And when yeah. you end up having marijuana, it makes them really tired. And so then it doesn't move the egg oh, as no. much. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. Yes. And is that like for a month after you smoke marijuana or
0: like oh that's a good
1: question i don't know how long the effects last for i would assume it's the same effects as how long you feel it because it's in your body for that long it probably Mm. equates to what it does for the body as well okay they just get lazy yeah (laughs) makes sense
0: (laughs) which is the whole point i think of marijuana is that you don't want that to be lazy
1: correct correct if you're trying to get pregnant it's most ideal that they are active and moving the way they should not um lazy and relaxed Got it.
0: And you mentioned supplements. Is there a particular supplement you
1: like to recommend? Yeah. So that's actually in that book. It all starts with an A, oh, yes. um, but that's going to be the things like the prenatal vitamin, the antioxidants, yeah. like vitamin E vitamin. So E is an elephant. B is in boy, um, uh, vitamin C is in cat. Um, oh, and same thing. Yes. Bay area tinker. Exactly. Like the same thing with a glass of wine. Same thing. It's, it's going to, um, kind of blunt the movement. But to tell you the truth, it probably doesn't have the same effect as marijuana. Um with the glass of wine as well, I actually um a lot of patients say, well, if I'm trying to get pregnant, I should abstain completely from alcohol. Um, and I actually don't necessarily recommend that because it's good to enjoy your life. It's important to enjoy your life. You know, there's plenty of babies who have been born in Vegas or conceived in Vegas. There's plenty of babies that have been conceived in Napa. Um, I think I interviewed at a hospital once and I think the labor delivery floor was sponsored or donated by one of the big Napa wineries. (laughs) So you you can indulge. I just wouldn't say go binge drinking every weekend while you're trying to get pregnant. Everything in moderation. Sure.
0: Okay, this is a quick one. This was one I thought of after I had heard my coworker tell me that. What is the craziest thing you've heard somebody try to conceive?
1: Uh... (laughs) <laughs> um, <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, um so I've had people I'm in the Bay Area there's a lot mm-hmm. of engineers here mm-hmm. so there's a lot of like critiquing of um sexual videos to oh. assist in researching and how the best way to get pregnant is so we had to talk about <laughs> videos and why um you know the 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 positioning doesn't seem to work out for their partner or um the women in the videos seem to enjoy themselves um so much more than my wife seems to be oh. um <laughs> and i'm like this is the problem with cs society don't believe yes. the videos Um, so that was always really fun. So that was kind of it, you know, I, I personally kind of want to create a book. That's like, how do you (laughs) teach sex to an engineer? How do you get pregnant? You know, like, well, or even just like a
0: teenager. I feel like that's a whole thing, like porn culture and just like, and having sex. Why isn't my partner just
1: like her head isn't exploding. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Correct. So that one, um, I've had, uh, situations when I was in residency of people who were actually having anal sex and wondering why they weren't getting pregnant. Mm. Um, How so did you figure that out? Um, we, when we did the exam and she was like, no, no, that's not where we have sex. We have sex further down. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like excuse me, doctor with a Harvard degree. I was like, I got this one. Like, I can, I can help. I can figure this out for her. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we could have this whole session on the oh fun God, things gosh. that come through the office. I wish.
0: Well, let's see how we have maybe like five more. Let's see how quickly we can get through our <laughs> other things. Because that's what I really want to know. Um, vaginal discharge, what is concerning
1: too much? What's normal? Does it mean you're ovulating? Mm. Mm. So really, really hard. It's, um, so it's really important, I think, for women to know what their cycles are like. Because then you know when something is different. Discharge is, in fact, super normal. And in fact, there can be people who are like super dischargers and that's just the way that you were created, you know, yeah. you don't just have natural lubrication and it's nothing that I would change. You're perfect exactly the way that you are. Um, but what happens is in the first half of the cycle is very estrogen dominant, which means that it helps to grow the lining of the uterus. So you'll find at the beginning part of a, of a cycle. It's very like clear, mucousy, and what that's supposed to do is help get sperm up to the egg. Um, And then once you ovulate, it's a very progesterone dominant cycle, which means that the discharge is a little bit more like thick, white. um, I don't want to say clumpy. That's not quite the word, but it's going to be just a little bit different. And that is so that that way you aren't trying to get the sperm up there because we're not cats and trying to give birth to litters. Mm. So, you know, those are very important. So only if a discharge itches or smells bad should someone be seen. And even itchy does not always mean yeast infection. So I think that that's super important because you can be itchy because discharge can be scratchy for the same reason that if if anybody out there has seasonal allergies, when you are in that time of the uh, uh, time of the bloom, your eyes are itchy, your throat is itchy, your vagina can also be itchy. Oh. I did not yes. Know that. So that's why we would recommend like antihistamines, like Claritin or Zyrtec or Benadryl to really control that symptom. Um, but, you know, if you are sexually active with multiple partners, STD screening would be appropriate. If you recently got antibiotics, it's a high likelihood that you end up with a yeast infection because it kills both the good and the bad bacteria. Mm-hmm. If people have IUDs, you can have an increased discharge. And the reason why is because that discharge is making it so the sperm can't go up there. That's what makes it a good contraceptive. Oh. So you kind of have to tease out like what your clinical situation is and then you can kind of figure it out. But when people always say like, oh, I always get yeast infections, it happens every month, right before my period, I'm a little bit skeptical because if it was a yeast infection, it wouldn't go away. As soon as you get your period it would linger and probably get worse and so I'm always a big fan if you can get into your doctor's office to always come in and get screened because otherwise um you might just be misdiagnosing yourself and then you're just spending a whole bunch of money on monostat when you don't need to Gotcha. Yeah, that actually reminds me of another question that we have. I have recurring
0: BV, which I googled is bacterial vaginosis, usually occurring after my cycle. I am tired of being on antibiotics. Is there anything I can do?
1: Yeah. So um, just for the people who are listening out there, so your your vagina kind of works in a yin and a yang. That's a pretty cup. So Mm -hmm. a yin and a yang. (laughs) And so um, too much yeast, yeast infection, too much bacteria, bacterial infection. And just like I had said, when um, you get treated for um, a yeast infection, or sorry, an antibiotic, it kills bacteria and raises up the yeast. That's why people get yeast infections. And so some people will notice they have bacterial vaginosis symptoms when they are on their period with a new sexual partner, um, oral sex seems to cause that for people. And I don't know if it's because the partner's mouth flora causes yeast infections or bacterial infections to happen. I don't really know. Mm -hmm. But that discharge is usually like copious, smelly, like a lot of it, maybe kind of like gray or clear. And so that's kind of the way that you can tell. It's a little alarming. It, well, and it's important to come and be seen because again, STD screening is really important and you want to make sure you're treating the right stuff. So it's important to figure out the trigger. And this might be a lot of information, but you know, it's helpful. No, so for, for myself, for instance, I know that if I may end up with a bacterial infection, if I don't use my tampon an extra day. So for some reason, when that blood is sitting in the vaginal canal, it irritates and changes the pH and I end up with bacterial vaginosis. So it's super important to kind of figure out the trigger. So if it's when you're always with your partner and you get it, put a condom on and see if it makes a difference. If it always seems to happen after your period, put on a diva cup, put on a um, a tampon and see if it avoids it. Um, And for some people, if the trigger is being with their partner, some people would say, Oh my gosh, that means I'm allergic to his sperm. (laughs) I don't know about that. But um, some people will use like a, a vaginal bacterial gel so that that way they can kind of treat the pH change at that moment because no matter how much you like clean things out and urinate afterwards and wash people can still end up with you know infections and things so
0: and you're never supposed to douche like that's no
1: Bad. bad 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 yeah no I would not recommend that um I know people who do Um, Apple cider vinegar washes. And I would not because it is really, it cleanses itself. The stuff that you use may in fact be very irritating to the vaginal wall. And that will actually cause you to have either an increase in discharge or whatever. If I kind of liken it to, um, I don't know about you, but when I was younger, I had a lot of acne. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what would happen is, is I would try to wash my face more in hopes that I could kind of like balance all the T-zone oily skin right? Yeah. But all that ended up happening was that it would make my skin really dry. And then my skin would reproduce more oil to try to like take care of itself. So mm-hmm. same thing. So you really don't want to, I'm not a big fan of fancy vaginal wipes. I'm not a well, big none fan. None of, of them at all. Not at all. Mm-mm. I mean, yes. if you're going to use it to maybe clean after a bowel movement, okay. But just kind of mm-hmm. keep it to the rectal area. And even then that might be really tough for your for the skin. Oh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, what do you think after sex like
0: you never recommend a feminine wipe
1: no all that i would say is i'm um, just clean with water if you feel like it's like sticky or whatever just some mm-hmm. water pat dry and leave it alone air dry if you want to
0: you've just wiped out an entire industry <laughs> One <know>. slap <laughs> I'm of I'm your saving hand
1: y'all money <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay, next question. I have a groin cyst that gets bigger and smaller. It's about the size of a marble. What could it be and what should I do? Um, And does having a baby have any effect on that?
1: should not. Some people find that when they have a cyst, when they're hormonal, sometimes it seems to fluctuate, get bigger, smaller. Mm -hmm. If it's in the groin area, like groin versus vagina are two separate things, even though they're really close together. So if it's in the groin, even if you have, um, I mean, you can get cysts anywhere on your face, on your back, on your arms. Um, and it can come and go just as long as it's not infected you can leave it alone. So as long as it's not tender and red and expanding and kind of has its own pulse to it and gives you a fever, you know, those are the things that we'd be like, Oh, we should, we should know more about that. Um, But you can just have it fill with water, then go down and back and forth. Same thing if it was actually in the vagina, Um, you could possibly have it removed Um, pushing and having a baby. Isn't going to do anything for it. Mm -hmm. Um, you can put warm compresses, sometimes it helps to draw it up to the surface and then hopefully, um, drain on its own. I would not recommend picking at it or trying to poke it yourself. Mm Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, if you're terribly concerned or you feel like it's a lymph node, then I would recommend seeing your doctor. Of
0: course. Okay. Very helpful. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, why does it take so long to get your period back when you are exclusively breastfeeding? And is it easier to lose weight or body fat once you have your period return?
1: Ooh, okay. Let me attack the second one first. Um, I I tried to combine them,
0: but they really are.
1: Um, Probably not. So uh, can you repeat the second one again? Okay. The
0: second one, is it easier to lose weight or body fat?
1: Like, can, can you, is it easier to lose weight or body fat once
0: your period returns? After your breast done breast: Probably
1: not. I don't think that there's a correlation from weight loss and period return. I think that that's something that has to be disassociated. So um, weight loss after having a baby is yeah. often dependent on how much weight you gained during the pregnancy, what kind of health status you were in to begin with. Um, you know, what kind of exercise pattern you had before, Mm -hmm. um, and then of course, diet and exercise, um, breastfeeding can help with calories. It can help with weight loss because those calories are going to the breastfeeding, but it's not all solely just that. Um, when the period returns, all that that's telling you is now you're just cycling either. Now you're cycling or the hormones are back to normal. Um, and you can just have continuous periods, but it's not going to necessarily do anything for weight. Um, I usually tell people that it takes probably a good, like six to eight months to lose the baby fat that you had, like literally the fat that you had when you were growing your baby. Um, but that really depends on where you kind of started to begin with. Yeah. I remember yeah. Serena Williams, the tennis star.
0: She was like, this is not true. The second I stopped breastfeeding and I dropped the weight,
1: like, oh, know. she's pretty rare, but then she's also been a very active woman to begin with. So that muscle memory and that body memory is very different. If you ended up creating a whole bunch of fat cells when you were pregnant because you were eating whatever you would like, those fat cells are still going to be there and it's going to take work to regress. You can make new fat cells. You can create fat cells. Yeah. I mean, that's how people can go from, you know, whatever to a hundred pounds heavier because they're just creating more fat cells. They like recruit themselves. And where do you think the in and out goes? I don't know. (laughs) I mean, it's, so now I'm down to half a milkshake.
0: I was like very into milkshakes with Cohen. And then since I had him, I was like, now I just tell them to give me half a milkshake. And every single time they're like, do you want it in a second cup? I'm like, no, you're missing the (laughs) point of this. Um, You're like,
1: save me from myself.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, but it's, I don't get milkshakes every day. I did that the first time around, but not anymore. They're so good. They are so good. They're really good. good. And I, let me just tell you, I had never had, um, I'd had a milkshake like at camp or whatever, but I had (laughs) never gotten a milkshake just like at a restaurant until I was pregnant with my son. And it's amazing. You can just get them. Like, yes. If you want a milkshake, you could just get a milkshake. (laughs)
1: Yes, (laughs) There are some of my favorite places out there that are really close to work, which is really dangerous.
0: Which place are you talking about? Oh, Five Guys. I love oh, okay. Five Guys. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I don't think I've had theirs, but I will try that. Okay, the first part of that question was, why does it take so long to get your period back when you are exclusively breastfeeding?
1: So that depends, because there are some people who actually have their period, um, every month after they give birth. So um, that might've just been the unique case for that specific person. Mm-hmm. I have had people who didn't have their periods, let's say for eight months when they were breastfeeding, but I also know people who have had it every single month or even more irregularly than that. So, um, that just might be a unique case. But you said last time that most women, the majority of women
0: start ovulating again about three months after giving yeah. birth. Correct. Yeah.
1: So you can ovulate, but okay. that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have the bleeding. Interesting. Okay. Um, We're really cranking out here. We only have one left, and then I'm going to circle back
0: to some fun stuff. Okay. Um, Okay. So I think we may have talked a little bit about this with PMS symptoms last time, but so basically this gal is asking, whichever side I'm ovulating on, I have a lot of pain, bloating, and swelling. Why is that happening? Is
1: there anything I can do to prevent it or treat it? Yeah. So what you're talking about is something called middle Fancy. I think they're German words. I think it's German. Um, But it essentially is mid-cycle ovulation pain. So like I had mentioned before, in a 28-day cycle, most people will ovulate right in the middle. It's just kind of like this curve like this. And Mm -hmm. what happens when um, you're heading towards ovulation is there's a follicle that is small and growing, 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 and then it releases the egg. So what ends up happening is is that that sensation, particularly as we get older, people Mm -hmm. just feel more. Generally, your ovaries will ovulate different months so one month it's the right side next month it's the left side and then it's the right side and left side and so some people can feel it on one side more than another so for instance I myself I always feel it on the left that's like my my go-to area but it helps you know when you're ovulating which is really cool so you know your body's working the way that it's supposed to Mm -hmm. um and in terms of what you can do about it I mean, the it's, it's, it's a natural cycle. One option is you can take birth control pills to make yourself not ovulate, and therefore you can avoid that symptom. Um, some people will do, you know, heating pad, Tylenol, um, you know, taking it easy, not trying to... Um, Uh, like exercise really heavily at that time because you could end up rupturing that cyst just because of its size. Um, But of course you wanna make sure that it's not too big. Like a follicle itself is only three centimeters any um, cyst that's greater than that is something that may be sensitively painful and, you know, may need some intervention if they're too big. But it's a normal cycle. And um, other than pain management, there's not too much you can do unless you want to manipulate your cycle so that you're not ovulating. Hmm. Got it.
0: Do all birth controls prevent
1: ovulation? Or I thought there were different kinds of it. That's correct. So there's different kinds. So for instance, like the IUD, like the ParaGuard IUD, which does not have hormones in it, it's not going to prevent it at all. Hi. It's not going to prevent it at all. So what ends up happening is, is that, um, the T inside the uterus is just making it so your are um, a pregnancy can't implant, mm-hmm. but you're still going to be releasing that egg. You're still going to be, you know, um, Possibly it could meet a sperm, but it's just that it's not implanting. Got it.
0: So yes. if someone was very religious, say Catholic, and they believed the moment of conception was the moment of life, is there particular birth controls that? that makes yeah. Sense? So
1: that is really going to be a huge discussion because mm-hmm. if they believe that the conception of life is when the heartbeat forms Okay. then you, or, you know, when there's a sperm and egg meet together, maybe I should mm-hmm. say that sperm and egg okay. meet together, then an IUD may not necessarily be the best option. The reason why it's because all that is doing is, is making sure it doesn't implant. Gotcha. Now, if you wanted to prevent the egg from even meeting sperm, then a birth control pill would be the best because it makes the ovaries quiet. It doesn't release an egg and therefore there's no, conception happening but everybody's different and i've actually spoken to lots of different people who are religious in a whole bunch of different ways and everybody has a completely definite different definition regardless of their church that they belong to so it's really an important um teasing point to figure out what it means to them because it's it's different sure
0: gotcha yeah yeah
1: Um, um I'm looking at the time.
0: I don't want to repeat what happened last time. But I thought you and I had an interesting discussion because I had been looking at like home birth safety rates. um, And it seems like here was just my because I kind of I've heard some horror stories as a nurse and um, seen some stuff. And so I was like, what is the data? You know, like, is one safer than the other? And it seems like the data will never really be able to do a head to head comparison because to qualify for a home birth, you have to be super healthy, no risks. So Mm -hmm. that it's never going to be apples to apples, but for, I guess, for somebody who, you know, doesn't have a lot of risks, would you, and like a home birth was very important to them. Why don't you tell me, tell everybody what you told me. And then can you talk a little bit more about home births?
1: Uh, Yeah. I mean, home births, I think it's really important just to understand where the patient is coming from. Um, Because there's different reasons that people do home births. There's people who want to do a home birth because they um, want to respect their body. They feel like in a hospital, we're going to intervene and do things and not always respect what they have to say. I find that that is often the people who want home births are the people in their first delivery, either weren't listened to, weren't part of the conversation, um, didn't feel like they were part of their birth. And so um, they decided to swing the opposite direction and put it in a perspective where I've got complete control of everything. Mm. Um, we would never suggest doing a home birth, um, particularly from where I work, just because of coronavirus, um, because I don't think that, that uh, the complications that can happen from a home birth are fairly significant. Um, and the risk of getting coronavirus to the point where it ends up hurting you or your partner is actually fairly low. So mm-hmm. we would never encourage that. As a physician, I'm always a big fan of delivering in a hospital because we have all the resources necessary when things go bad. The reason why people are not dying in modern day world is because we can intervene. We have monitoring. We have awareness. We can see signs and we can intervene before things get really dramatic. Someone dies, baby dies, whatever. Um, Of course, there are plenty of home births that are done out there that, are successful and beautiful and exactly what they wanted. Um, you know, Ricky Lake has her video of her home birth and her experience. And I think that that is fine for her. I've just seen the situations where people are in home birth with, I don't know, maybe experienced or not experienced midwives, and they have complications. They have dead babies. They come in with us rescuing them and, there's a lot of morbidity and mortality to the mom and the baby. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's the part that sucks because if we can prevent that, that's always our goal. Our goal is always healthy baby, healthy mom. And I'm so proud to work with a medical group with midwives who are really respectful. We've had plenty of people who come in with very strong birth plans. They want the security of being in a hospital, but they really want a hands-off approach. It makes it a little bit difficult for us, but you know, at least they're in a safe atmosphere. So, You know, I'm always going to advocate to be doing it in the hospital because at least we can intervene before things get scary. And I've seen things go scary fast, 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 fast. And that is the part that we want to prevent. Yeah. That actually happened to a birth I was
0: watching a few months ago um, in my personal life. And it was, it went from like just monitoring to like in the OR within like three minutes. So it's good to be close to that. Something so I don't know if you're familiar, I can take it offline, but there's one story of a home birth that did go very poorly and the baby passed away. Um, and part of it that came up and as I didn't remember specifically, cause I'm not an OB nurse. Can you talk a little bit about meconium at delivery and like how yeah. dangerous is that just for everybody, even whether or not you're in the hospital, but like, yeah.
1: Yeah. So meconium is essentially baby poop. Um, and baby, this is something that usually happens in, um, you know, later on in the pregnancy. So maybe closer to your due date, maybe even a week or two after that. But what ends up happening when you have meconium is the baby, they, they think that the reason that the baby ends up, um, releasing that into the amniotic fluid is when they're under stress. So Mm -hmm. some people say that that's again, because they're past their due date. Um, some people may feel it's because, um, um, the the baby was stressed out in some way just like when you know as adults we get nervous and sometimes we just have to poop you know so that is you know a situation that happens for babies or if you're at target
0: that's been happening to me lately my family always talks about like tj maxx and having to
1: poop mine was the library in college but you know
0: (laughs) or it's like it's funny because it could be like you're really relaxed it's true but but more it's like diarrhea, if you're really stressed.
1: That is absolutely correct. Anatomy, anatomy exams. I was like every, the whole class. Um, but so what the, the issue, it's not actually a big deal. Oh, thanks, Sachi. That's my best friend out there. Oh. Um, and so um, one of the issues are is that when the baby has a bowel movement and the baby who's floating in amniotic fluid swallows that fluid that's when we have an issue because then it can end up in the baby's lungs. Um, And if anybody knows anything about aspiration and, you know, any kind of fluid that goes into your lungs, the issue is is that you can get pneumonia, you can have difficulty breathing. And these, you know, little ones have never really expanded their lungs before. And often they may need to even be suctioned and remove the fluid because now it's just junky sitting right in the, um, in the lungs. So that's the part that's an issue now. So for us, our pediatricians are always, um, at the deliveries when there's a meconium baby. Mm -hmm. Um, and we have respiratory therapy nearby for the exact same thing. And that's when it becomes scary is when the baby ends up inhaling and swallowing it and we got to go get it and get it out. So if you see green, I mean, it's like green
0: and it's like, they make it seem like it's like green, green, like gushing out. Is it always like that? Um oh it
1: is not always but what ends up happening if someone is breaking their bag of water let's say at home yeah if someone is breaking their bag of water at home they'll notice maybe like a green tinge it won't be like kermit the frog green it may just be kind of like a pale green sometimes it can be really chunky and looks almost like poop um but uh it's a little bit more kind of like tinged. and if that happens of course call your labor and delivery and be seen gotcha
0: do they always need antibiotics or
1: not always? It depends on how much um, aspiration they end up having because they may not, they may just be suction It may just have been like stuck in the throat. They get it out. No problem. But if it's further down, then they may just want extra monitoring, particularly if the baby's having issues with um, oxygen saturation um, or even like eating, it can be something interesting.
0: And then, okay. Last clinical question. Cause I really want to like ask you some funny questions. <laughs> yes. um, for So when someone's water breaks, you guys usually like to get the baby out within 24 hours. Is that correct? No. No? No. No.
1: no. And in fact, actually, when um, our patients break the bag of water, not all facilities do this, but when the bag of water is broken, and we confirm that it actually is broken, if if it's a low-risk pregnancy, no complications, we will actually send people home. We'll send them home for 12 hours. Okay. And the reason why is because we want natural labor to happen by themselves. And if they don't then yes, of course they come back. We you know try to get some contractions to start, but we really want um, if we can the natural labor to happen. So there is no timeline. Um, people can be, you know, bag of water broken for 24, 36, 48 hours. But really, the most important thing is to make sure baby looks okay, that there is no fever, there's no uterine tenderness, which would um, indicate an infection in the uterus. Um, So we kind of, you know, let the body really do what it's supposed to do.
0: Okay. Oh, gosh. Dang, I keep thinking of clinical questions for you, which, (laughs) ah, okay, I, there was this holistic mom that was very anti-vax that I followed for a little while. And she was saying if she was group B positive, she would do whatever it take took to not get antibiotics. And I was like, Why would you do that? Um, Okay. Do you have any quick thoughts
1: of that? Question. Yeah, so, um, um, so when a mom is 36 weeks, we do screening on the skin of the vaginal area. Um, it's normal for us to have a bacteria on our skin. It's called group B strep. Um, and it's a bacteria that you can have. It's not a problem. We don't have to give you antibiotics, nothing. But what ends up happening is if you have it in the vaginal canal and you go into labor, Let's or break your bag of water or whatever, if that baby's sitting in the vaginal canal, it can pass the infection to the baby. And the issue is, is that group B strep is one of the highest causes of meningitis for babies. Now, um, so if someone tested positive and you're in labor for a really long time, maybe with a bag of water broken, maybe pushing for four hours, that baby is sitting in that bacteria. And so that's why we would want to go ahead and give an antibiotic. Now, if you are group B strep positive, and let's say you stop and dropped your baby, the baby's barely in the canal. like it's just shooting straight through. So you really don't need, you know, we don't have to worry as much about the infection. Um, but it's when the, the baby's been sitting there a while or you're being induced or the labor is taking 48, 72 hours and that baby is exposed, that's where we get concerned. Now, I don't. I will admit I don't know the other side of it. I don't know why you're, you whoever want you're to talking much, about. Yeah. Yeah, decided not to. Um, I'd love to see that literature. Um, but for myself, um, just knowing that that's one of the higher risks, I would be really cautious to, to choose not to give antibiotics. Cool. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, thank you for that. Okay. I really think that we've answered everyone's clinical questions. (laughs) Yeah. So, and the ones that have popped into my mind. Um, (laughs) so I want to hear your freaky labor and delivery stories, like What's the weirdest thing you've seen during delivery, after delivery? You
1: know, it's so, it's so hard because, you know, we, and I saw Sally on here. If Sally's still here, I would love for her to like, to try to like remind me a story. I mean, I have, there's plenty. Um, it, it's hard to tell it on command. You know, like you can't tell a comedian. like. I tell know it I it on
0: should command. have warned you. <laughs> but
1: there. you know, so some of my favorite stories, um, I don't even know if they're freaky, but I mean, I just think that they're really fun. funny so, or just like where you're like, what is that's different, maybe <laughs> culturally, you know, not like well so it's a few things, so um, we only have until nine thirty right, yes, Tracy, okay, so I'll tell two stories that come to the top of my mind, and I'm sure I have plenty more. one involves me, and one does not, so I'll tell the so i I don't know where in the Mm, history of families where they recommend if there's any vaginal itching or swelling or whatever, um, that garlic is a very good um, uh, decreased inflammation type of okay. natural product. And so what ended up happening is I had a colleague tell a story of how there was an older woman around 60 or so. And she was coming not older, to- older. I said older. I said older. At least I didn't a say young elderly. Nurse, elderly a young older. <laughs> so go on. They she had said that um, she'd come in for irregular bleeding. Um, and when someone is older than the menopause, we get concerned that there could be cancer or something going on. And so my colleague is seeing and she's doing a speculum exam and she's like Did you put what what is what's in there? And and so because it looked like this fungating mass that could be cervical cancer. But she's like touching it and she's like, What is that? Uh, and then she's like, Did you put something in here? And the woman is like, mm, uh,
0: mm, uh. Did I? It's hard to remember. She's
1: like no. <laughs> She's like, Two weeks ago I put Ooh. garlic up there. <laughs> <What>? And so <laughs> my my colleague took a ring forcep and grabbed it and took it out and it was a full head (laughs) of garlic so she's like you
0: probably could not get that out yourself if you put that in right (laughs) like
1: gosh it didn't start growing things and so she's like huh and and she's like you didn't want to just put in like a clove like (laughs) you had to put in like the the whole head and so that was that was fun Oh my (laughs) god! So that's a good one. So another one that I really love, my um, I I didn't see her on here, um, Melinda, when I was in residency. So I was on a night shift. Um, Mm. Night shift is always when fun things happen. Mm -hmm. And, um, it was a woman who came in, she was 10 centimeters dilated. She was actually the cousin of one of our anesthesiologists. I was like trying to be on my best behavior and let me help you, you know, just trying to make her experience really beautiful. But she came in 10 centimeters, but her bag of water was still intact. And so Mm -hmm. I was like, well, that's got to go to be able to deliver the baby. But I knew it was also holding the baby's head in. Mm -hmm. So what I did was I was like, okay, uh, nurses, do we have the room ready? Is my IV in? Is everything set up? Everybody's good. Everybody's good. Okay, great. Check in. Let's have a baby. And so I was just a probably second or third year resident and to break the bag of water. It's like this like little plastic hook. Thing. Like a crochet hook, kind of. Um, yes, like a crochet hook. Yes, exactly. And it's it's plastic. Um, it doesn't hurt the baby at all. And so I'm, she's, you know, ready to deliver in the position, you know, legs open, ready to push. I'm all dressed and ready to go. And I take the hook and I do this, and it is like Niagara Falls. Like it <laughs> smacks me in the face. Hits the back wall. It's oh. in my mouth. I'm like, this is before COVID. So I didn't have any protective equipment. And and back then, you wanted to have your face showing because it's very pleasant and there's no odors. And, ah, yes, you're going to have a baby. And so it is everywhere. And so I'm trying to maintain my calm, but I'm also like, (laughs) like doing this. And of course, the nurses who are hysterically laughing at me are like, can someone please wipe the doctor's face? (laughs) I am so embarrassed and of course the patient is like oh my god I'm so sorry oh my gosh I'm so sorry oh my gosh oh my gosh and I am like it's my fault push let's have a baby like let's go for it it was insane it was one of the funniest experiences of my life like literally <laughs> all the way back and you're trying to look extra I'm just dying. trying to look like this is happens to everybody but I will say that that's the first experience where I know now when I break the bag of water, you stand to the side. (laughs) You're like, uh-huh. There you go. Exactly. Just kind of lean for it. (laughs) That's so funny.
0: Sandy Cheeks wrote that she's seen some interesting things come out of women um, working in her short stint in the hospital. Every time I go to the hospital, like to the ER, I always ask, what is the craziest thing you've seen? Every single story is something really crazy up the rectum, every single one
1: i mean yes yeah. so i haven't really had any things about that i mean i've heard stories like you always end up hearing the the e the r ER nurses the ER, get the the exactly like there's always a vibrator you know I've heard stories about how the vibrator is in either of the crevices and you know it's vibrating they don't know how to turn it off but they're riding (laughs) in a motorcycle on the way to the er and it's vibrating like crazy and you're just kind of like did it happen i don't know
0: but it's a good story these were like one of them was the man that didn't speak english who had a hydrogen peroxide
1: bottle up the rectum Um, you can google plenty of images of various um x-rays of items and you can't fake that no,
0: Definitely.
1: no. I mean, I haven't had anybody in, when I was in residency, I was called to the ICU because a woman was having a lot of scratching um, and itching and it was causing bleeding. And I remember I went to the ER, did a speculum exam and I'm like, what's that? And it ended up being the end of a travel tooth, um, toothbrush, you know, the head part. Just and the head? Like, oh, <laughs> yes. Just- and I'm like, oh, we need to start some antibiotics. But we got it out. And I was like, is there anything else in there? She's like, no. She's like, it was just so itchy. I just needed to get in there. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. If you're at that point, ladies and gentlemen, please come in and see your OB-GYN. You feel Don't like inserting
0: anything in there. An electric toothbrush to help you itch. <laughs> Something's very wrong.
1: Something's wrong. But, I mean, there's people who you know, may have very aggressive sexual experiences and then have a lot of bleeding and that's really tough um, because you have to like try to like close it. Oh, what's Sandy saying? Feathers, washer, hardware, forgotten tampons. Oh, forgotten tampons. You have to have a protocol to get rid of forgotten tampons, which happens, everybody. I've had plenty of people come back from Vegas and they're like, I don't know how many's in there. Like you, (laughs) it's a little bit like um, uh, a clown car. <laughs> oh my
0: god. Can I just say so what this whole girl talk thing when I was growing up, I'd go to summer camp and we always loved talking about like our periods and sex, like at night in the cabins. And like shock syndrome was a very big conversation topic. We were all just like, if we use a tampon, there's a very good chance we're gonna die. You know, we have to change it every <laughs> six hours. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's so funny. You know, toxic shock syndrome actually has not been such a big issue, whether it's because people are choosing better tampon sizes. We have the choice of tampon sizes. People know to take it out. Um, But, you know, I've actually maybe one in my, what is that? I graduated to like 13 year career have ever seen it. So it's actually pretty, I think, pretty rare for it to happen these days. Um, just because I think that the product itself has really changed a lot and people are aware of it, but you still have that label on there that talks about it.
0: Yeah. It's like, by the way, you could die every month. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, really quickly. And then I want to hear your thought on eating placentas after this. Um, in my, when I was in nursing school, the instructor told a story about how, her first birth like alone as a nurse and she left the room right after the baby was born and when she came back in everyone was naked and they had the, a frying pan or like a, a hot pad plugged in and they were like we need the placenta we're gonna fry it right now um which was interesting uh
1: i so i haven't had anybody asked to fry their placenta maybe they uh. do it when they get home um, but I have had people who request to have the placenta.
0: Big thing now. So what are your thoughts on that? And I did see some things about like you could get an infection from eating
1: it. What? Yeah, you know that's a very Kardashian thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially cause we're in the Bay area and so close to Santa Cruz, there's actually a lot of people who produce those placenta ca- encapsulations or placenta mm-hmm. capsules. I actually have no problem with it. I mean, theoretically, I think it makes sense. If you think about the big hormone drop that happens, um, when your placenta is removed, that can sometimes help to, um, you know, kind of gently ease you in. I think one of the issues is, is that, um, number one, I, I don't know where those places make sense them so I don't know Mm -hmm. how sanitary how do you make sure you have yours and not someone else's you know but they say it helps with breastfeeding with postpartum depression they feel like it helps with skin and you know all of the recovery things that people really want to focus on after delivery um I don't have a recommendation of a certain place. I would just say you would have to just research and find which one seems to make sense. Um, but yeah, we just have people sign a release of records and then they can take their placentas and do whatever they like. Oh, so I was wondering about it. that. OK. Yeah, so, so some they- people will make soups. Some people will do it at home. Some people will send the, the placenta someplace to get it um, cap- encapsulated. Some yeah. people will plant it under a tree. As a nutrient that's um the they that's just like i mean you'd better really want a good
0: tree if you're postpartum and like just thinking of myself like there's no tree i love enough to be like i'm gonna take home one of my organs and plant it like you know i'm un- unpacking from the hospital and everything else like I'm breastfeeding to like make that tree thrive but i mean i have some people you. say
1: like i want to keep my organs because I, I don't want like a conspiracy theory of people doing things with my placenta no okay. we just throw it you know when it unless someone has like a complicated pregnancy there can be a lot of information within that placenta you know if someone was diabetic hypertensive had you know heart rate issues or even like a fetal demise there's actually could be a lot of information in the placenta which may in fact be helpful oh my gosh um,
0: wait i just remembered a question that i did not ask you someone had high blood pressure their first pregnancy preeclampsia i want to say um or or the possibility of that how likely is that to happen with a second pregnancy
1: Mm, so we never really know the reasons why preeclampsia even happens so some people say that it is um where there's like an allergic reaction to the partner's sperm some people say (laughs) when you have high blood pressure it just seems to create a chemical reaction which increases the risk for preeclampsia towards the end of the pregnancy um i there's no one thing that's supported. So I really don't know how to tell people how it happens, Mm -hmm. but the studies have shown if it's the same father of the baby, Mm -hmm. um, if they have preeclampsia, let's say the first time there is an increased risk, but not always a likely risk the second time.
0: Hmm. So they'll probably have
1: to deal with it again. So they may, but I've had a lot of patients who, whether they lost a bunch of weight, ate better food, um, you know, then they didn't get preeclampsia the next time. But you just have to always be aware. So knowing that history is there, I always say have a blood pressure cuff at home. You know, maximize your weight before you get pregnant. All of that stuff.
0: Gotcha.
1: That's good. Wow, we did it. We have sixty seconds remaining. Yay!
0: We did good. Thank you so much. I can't believe I I'm. Did now- I'm pretty sure so. That's wonderful, um, you just thank you, out, so you're I'm such a sure. trooper. I have something for you, I keep meaning, oh, oh. Got it. I was saying thank you so much, you're just such a trooper. I can't believe you've given us so much of your time and expertise and yeah. so many good nuggets here. I mean, really, we could do 20 more of these because you're <laughs> so wonderful to chat with. But if anybody wants to read your lovely book, again, you do not need to have herpes to read it. I feel like it's just really good to read a story and it's like very relatable like with i would love to talk to like pick your brain about sex ed and like just yeah. in a but obviously we're out of time but um i thought this was a really good thing at that and there's just like so many wonderful topic discussions to be made from this so if you can on-